Hi, I'm Jess. I'm Afi. I'm Carl. And I'm August. Today we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency, blockchain, uh, what's that other one? Ethereum. <laughs> but we're not going to even pretend that we know enough to explain to you how cryptocurrency works. Fortunately, we got someone, a guest, who's going to do that for us and explain it to us. Instead, we kind of wanted to start by just talking about why we want to talk about crypto in the first place, what it might mean for us and what its implications might be, what our concerns are, and why it's not just for finance bros. <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember my first time hearing about crypto, I was like in elementary school, and I just remember seeing headlines. That's Quite early. early. Maybe middle school then. Did it exist back then? Okay, maybe middle school. And so you really had the you, you really You're Satoshi Nakamoto? You you had the chance to really buy some Bitcoin early on and you just missed it. Alright, let me self-correct. It was high school <laughs> or middle school. because uh, I think one of my friends' older brothers was like on the early days of mining. Uh, but I remember always seeing headlines saying it's gonna to go to zero, it's a fad, it's nothing. Bitcoin's nothing. And here we are. And last year, one of our one of our classmates has two bitcoins, which means that he has at least, at least at a certain point, a cost of twenty thousand dollars. Who? Well, we're talking about the outcome. We're talking about. Well, um, going back to around that time, uh, we were all in middle school, high school. I think it was just after the financial crisis in the peak of the Great Recession. Uh, someone some group of people, something, uh, named Satoshi Nakamoto, released a paper called Bitcoin. Uh, I think it was a peerless uh, or a peer-to-peer cash exchange. And uh, there, Satoshi Nakamoto outlined an entirely new technology, a blockchain-based technology. And long story short, the point of this technology is to enable secure and reliable transactions without the necessary intermediaries that are required today in the traditional banking system to verify who you are, uh, whether you're credit worthy or whether you're trustworthy, that instead, all of that could be essentially offloaded to the objectivity of code and that code could manage our finance uh, rather than the um, traditional financial institutions that in recent history made such grave mistakes. Yeah, he has like a quote from, uh, he, he released Bitcoin with like a 500-word essay that really stuck with me. It was from this New Yorker article, which is where I got this quote. It said, the central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Banks must be trusted to hold our money and transfer it electronically, but they lend it out in ways of credit bubbles with barely a fraction in reserve. So whether or not you know you agree with that, uh, that's kind of the inception story of this technology, which is really blockchain that Bitcoin is uh, built or based on or built on Mm. that has, if you've been paying attention, uh, so many promises of democratization, uh, getting rid of the middleman, all these um, really uh, utopian, I think, it's just in the utopian society, uh, this new technology that we call the blockchain. Um, And I don't know, are we convinced? (laughs) I think think as with any new sort of technological development there's room for um scamming like we that there, what was that who who was it that said um like if you build it they will come but meaning that like if you build a new technology it was like one of our professors if you build a new technology um people that are going to come to try to use that to manipulate people so like i one of the first things well one of the more like established things that i learned about 
Bitcoin and cryptocurrency was I was watching like you know that Netflix documentary series called Explained and they like explain different topics. Mm-hmm. They explained they had one on finance and so one of the episodes was on cryptocurrency and within that episode they talk about this woman, Ruja Ignatova, who um, pinned herself the crypto queen, and she developed what was supposed to be um, a cryptocurrency that would compete with Bitcoin. She called it OneCoin. Um, she developed it in like 2014. And ended up getting a lot of contributions to it, billions of dollars in Bitcoin, and then actually disappeared in uh, 2016 or 2017, like fell off the face of the map, hasn't been found since, and like this cryptocurrency (laughs) never came to fruition. So I think like a lot of people, it's an interesting issue of trust because people say that like the reason that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency works is because you don't have to trust individuals, but also it seems rife with... (laughs) The fact that the trust isn't there and that poses other problems too mm, yeah but that hype around uh crypto around bitcoin uh seems to have really just been transferred from the financial the traditional financial world and investing world into this new uh, form of wealth which is ironic because like we just were talking about bitcoin was created as a counterbalance to the financial world and the irrationalities that can come from it and yet today the discourse seems so dominated by people who, one, it's opaque because of tech, and two, because of finance. Nobody likes any, both, either of those things. And so, um, in many ways... <laughs> true. The finance bills are coming down as next. <laughs> you know, in, in the, in the uh, what's called the genesis block of the blockchain of Bitcoin, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote uh, the Times, 3rd of January 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. That was a headline from 2009. Uh, about the need to bail out a, a British bank and generally the instability uh, that results and the problems involved with our current system of banking. I wonder whether Bitcoin and crypto in general has kind of lost that ethos and whether that even matters when we're dealing with code that is supposed to erode the point of trusting people in the first place. The thing is, we are still so early in this process. And I think what we need to remember is also that blockchain is, a, is ultimately a technology all these cryptocurrencies and tokens are one application of that technology, but the technology also bears potential for other applications. And mm-hmm. we're going to have other episodes in the future, preview to season two, mm-hmm. where we talk about other uh, applications of blockchain technology. And so I think uh, we just need to remember that um, we really need to s- start grasping the fundamentals of the technology, which we're going to be talking about today then we also need to be understanding that there are different types of cryptocurrencies and dip- different types of tokens with different functions and new ones are being created every day. Um, and so we need to just figure out what are some of the advantages that this technology could bring and how can we create technologies or applications or currencies that embody those embody that promise i think it's even bigger than that you know the biggest proponents of blockchain since its inception have noted how revolutionary and how matter of time it is that everyone understands blockchain is involved with it it's a whole ecosystem it becomes you know a new element on the internet not 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 so different from you know the 90s 
when all the biggest or early adopters were saying how would, why wouldn't you put commerce online why wouldn't you do these things and i feel like it kind of has the same energy where i hope you know i feel like this conversation is necessary because it's time we all understand at least in the fundamental level you guys are saying carl what is the blockchain yeah. what is crypto there's so much noise there's all these scams there's all these promises and there's all these applications uh so I'm kind of tired of talking past people when this comes up. <laughs> and here we need to see another tension between the original intent and the way that we see crypto today, where while back in the 90s and the 80s, even back into the 70s, obviously blockchain didn't exist and we didn't have the technological capacity to create such a technology. Uh, but there, were, there was a whole movement called crypto anarchism. And they believed in the power of encryption which is, and cryptography, which is a very old uh, science and field of study uh, to make technology truly private and secure in the coming digital world that they saw uh, as imminent and on the horizon. And so it comes from a movement that with anarchism in its name, it comes from uh, fundamentally a view that you can have stable and reliable technology that is free from government control because it will regulate itself. Um, and Carl, you rightly pointed out that this is just a technology that could be used for applications, for contracts, for governance, uh, a new form of computing, potentially. It's a new way of organizing people, really. It's, this is an interesting example of a technology that's almost more conservative. Like in some ways it mirrors the trope of like somebody that doesn't trust the government so they bury cash like in the backyard. Like this is that with a, an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I mean, there are lots of different dimensions to this, as you said. There, there are dimensions of really political philosophy. There are dimensions of technology, um, finance, and this is also why it's such a rabbit hole and why it's um, a topic that is kind of hard to break through. And so today, I think we're really excited to be talking to uh, Kai Sheffield, who is the head of crypto at Visa. And Kai, I think he has a lot of unique perspectives. He's a sociologist, and we talk about the sociology of money. Um, don't worry, he also understands technology, uh, despite the fact that he's a sociologist. Um, and so we're going to be talking about crypto really in all its dimensions, um, both the, the functioning of the blockchain, the sociology of money, what it means for the future of our financial system, what it means for just the future of systems in general. Um, and so we're really excited to have this conversation today, and we really hope that you will join us for this interview. Don't leave. It's not boring. <laughs> and please um, remember that none of this constitutes investment advice. Yes. <laughs> Hello, Kai. Welcome to the periphery. Uh, we are incredibly excited to have this conversation with you today about blockchain, crypto, um, and what it kind of means for finance, society, uh, me and you, uh, but you, we've done some research on you and we saw that you have a background in sociology and now you are VP and head of crypto at Visa, which to me does not strike as the most intuitive path. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I just want to start off, I'm curious, at what point did crypto come onto your radar and how did you position yourself to, you know, the head of crypto? Yeah, sure. So first, thanks for, for having me. Uh, so my background, as you mentioned, I, I was a sociology major in college. And to me, sociology was always, you know, just trying to study and explain the obvious. You know, why is the world the way that it is today? 
um, you know, things don't just happen by coincidences. Uh, and so sociology was always, you know, fascinating to me and, and was a big advocate for you know, liberal arts. And, you know, on the side, I got really interested in entrepreneurship and, and tech uh, while I was in college at Pomona. I got my first job out of college at a startup called TrialPay. Uh, it was a mobile advertising and fintech company. Visa acquired TrialPay in 2015. And so when Visa you know, acquired the startup, and I was employee number 100, I was a junior employee there, uh, I didn't know anything about payments. I didn't know anything about Visa, uh, and I didn't know anything about crypto. And so I happened to start going down the payments rabbit hole and just trying to understand how does Visa work, uh, how does the financial system work, and I happened to start going down the crypto rabbit hole as well. And I found that there were people who understood payments really well. They didn't know anything about crypto and they thought it was a fad or it was going away. And there were people that understood crypto really well and they didn't know anything about existing payment systems. And so I wanted to dedicate you know, my career to the intersection of the two. And it wasn't until I got into crypto where sociology started to, to come back uh, into my life where just trying to understand what Bitcoin is and what cryptocurrencies are, you know, you have to understand what money is in the first place. And I realized that I was fortunate to graduate from college and I couldn't even really explain. I never really thought about what is money and everyone cares about money. Everyone needs money. You know, it's just such this important concept and very few people stop to ask what is money? How did it evolve in the past? What's the history? And how will it evolve you know, into the future? And so to me, crypto represented, you know, really this this evolution of money and the future of money. And, you know, that was the most fascinating topic and question you could possibly ask. Uh, and so that's where I decided to, to dedicate my career. So, uh, Kai, well, first, I think we're all relieved to hear that you can have a humanities degree and be a player in the tech space. <laughs> uh, because all the hosts on this podcast, we all have humanities degrees. And, you know, we're trying to broaden the conversation and become and trying to kind of uh, diversify, but also distill the discourse around tech. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, I was really interested in this uh, in this kind of sociology concept and and looking really at the sociology of money. Um, without going too far down the rabbit hole, I was wondering if you could talk to us maybe about the sociology of money, about the sociology of traditional currencies, but then the sociology also of cryptocurrencies. Like, what are some of the key features that really distinguish cryptocurrencies from what we've seen before? Yeah. So first, I would argue that you know the liberal arts in a liberal arts humanities education is the best possible way to prepare uh, for future careers because what it does is it, it teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to write. Uh, you read a lot. And the world is changing so much; it's it's very hard to Speaking our language to get it's 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 very hard to get a degree in a specific thing. You really have to learn to to think and to read and to write. And so that's what sociology and, and humanities uh, did for for me. And so I think that the first realization is that money is not you know this constant thing. Money has evolved in the past, and so even going back in history. People used to use gold as money and people would pay for things in gold and then new technologies emerged. And, you know, it's funny to think about, but like paper uh, and paper bills were a new technology at one point. And it was, you know, wait a minute, it's actually easier to just have a bank hold gold in the vault and to have paper bills that represented a claim on that gold. 
and paper was lighter weight, could have different denominations, it was more convenient. And so that was a new technology that changed payments and that was a medium of exchange. Then over time, you know, this link to gold was separated where, you know, we started to see fiat currencies, you know, really in the, the 70s, uh, it was the first time that you now had paper bills and you had electronic money that was not directly backed by gold. And so we've really only been living in this era of the current forms and construct of money for like 50 years. And the civilization's been around a long time. So we've had these different eras of money. And now crypto really represents a new era and a new technology where money can be represented in this digital form. And you know, there are many different implications of this. And we think about crypto really as almost a digital version of cash, where it is, you know, cash is what's referred to as a bare asset. And so, you know, when you use cash, you know, the way that you determine ownership is holding a paper bill. The way that you authorize a transaction is you look at that paper bill, you make sure it's authentic and it's not counterfeit. Once you pass that paper bill over, the money is gone. You know, you can't get that back if you pass the paper bill over. And so now digital currencies emerge and cryptocurrencies, and they have these properties where they start to look like a digital version of cash. The ownership is determined by holding a private cryptographic key, you know, which is just a, a long password, a string of numbers. A payment is authorized by proving that you have access to and you have knowledge of that key. And if someone else gets access to that key or you lose it, the money is gone. And so for the first time, we have this notion of a digital bear asset that has many of the same properties of cash, but can be represented and held in a digital wallet instead of in a, a leather wallet. And so once you start to realize that money isn't static, it's not constant, it's an ever evolving concept, crypto doesn't seem that weird and that money has evolved in the past. And there was a time when people thought paper bills, like why would I use paper as money? Like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. And I think many people look at crypto today and they say cryptocurrency is a digital token. Why would I use that as money? And we think that they're going to continue to be more evolutions and new technologies will impact you know, how money works. And I think it's really exciting and has major implications for the world when money evolves. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, beyond beyond this individual, um, wow, this this money is digital. That's different. Maybe it's um, more convenient. I can I don't have to have physical access to it all the time. On a larger scale, what are the what do the differences about cryptocurrency? What do those do in terms of our capabilities in society? Like, what are we able to do more easily now that we've got this digital currency? Because it's not just revolutionary because it's new for individuals, right? It's revolutionary because it, it can achieve things that uh, older forms of currency couldn't achieve. Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. I think it's, it's helpful to take a step back and say that, you know, first, broadly, crypto is a general purpose technology. And it's a collection of technologies that are having impacts across many different industries and you know, many different verticals in society. And so cryptocurrencies are kind of one implementation of that technology. And cryptocurrencies, when you hear currency, you think a currency you use to spend. What we've seen is that you know, the use cases for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, they're really more appropriate to be called crypto assets. And it's an asset class where instead of people using Bitcoin to transact and using it as digital cash, they're really using it more as digital gold. They're using it as a store of value. 
as you know, an asset to invest in and to hold you know, as a hedge against inflation. And so that is one use case, one area where I'd argue there's product market fit that you have tens to hundreds of millions of people who are holding Bitcoin as an asset. Then we see other technologies and, and other products like stable coins. These are fiat-backed digital currencies. And so now you, know, you can take you know, a fiat currency and represent it on a public blockchain. So they're basically crypto dollars. They're not you know, a new currency. They're a new form factor of an existing currency. And this enables public blockchains to be useful as payment rails. And so things like cross-border payments, remittances, or business-to-business -business payments, you know, if you've ever tried to send an international bank wire, it's not particularly easy to do. You know, it takes a long time to get there. You know, there are high fees. There's not a lot of transparency. So we're seeing this collection of technologies enable innovations like the ability to send money cross-border, you know, and it settles nearly instantly for a low fee, stable coins are powering you know, a lot of that. But it's not just about payments. There are also new financial services being built on public blockchains. So there's this whole trend that's called DeFi, decentralized finance, where now you have developers that are building ways that you can lend and borrow or that you can trade without any middleman on top of a, a blockchain. And so, you know, there are whole new financial services that are emerging. And then it's not just financial services, it's culture, it's music. Now you have non-fungible tokens or NFTs where you're seeing artists and creatives that are actually, you know, using crypto as a new form factor for videos or for audio, for images, where they're now, you know, creating music that is on a blockchain that can be sold, you know, as an asset. And so crypto is a general purpose set of technologies that's impacting everything from how people store wealth, how people pay, how people interact with financial services, and how people collect art and how people you know, launch their music. Like there's so many different implications that, that crypto can have. I got to study sociology in college as well. Um, and uh, one thing I really enjoyed about that was how it used concepts like trust uh, and legitimacy to kind of explain how societies held themselves together. And um, when we talk about banks or even governments who issue uh, cash, I feel like that's, that's that repository of trust that those institutions give the seal of approval uh, so we can trust the value that, those, that, that that cash or whatever we're using represents. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering if there's like a fundamental shift here with crypto, because at least in the discourse, we talk about how we don't even need trust anymore, when really it seems to me like they're trusting this encryption software. Uh, and I, I wonder what you think about that. What are we trusting or is trust becoming irrelevant? Uh, and um, can we trust essentially a kind of an autonomous or uh, decentralized system where uh, it's it's difficult to hold any one point uh, to account or incentivize behavior. It, that is a fantastic question, and I I would argue that you know trust you know it's it's critical and it will always exist and, and needs to exist. I think what's changing is there are new kinds of institutions, uh, and so if you think about what institutions play a role in the financial system and and provide trust. For money and payments today, you know, it tends to be their banks and, and their payment networks. And so then in crypto, we're seeing you know, there are similar types of institutions that are crypto exchanges or wallets, you know, companies like Coinbase. And, and so these are you know, just crypto institutions that provide services similar to what a bank provides. They're not banks, but they provide services in a similar way. 
I would also argue that you could say that public blockchains themselves are institutions, but they're new types of institutions. They're organized in different ways. They're not a top-down, you know, hierarchical, you know, corporate structure with a CEO. They are these decentralized institutions, but they still have rules. They still have principles that are, you know, really represented in code, you know, by which those institutions organize and operate. And then there's a wide participation from actually end users in those institutions. And so that's this other really interesting concept in that used to have a separation of, you know, a role of an institution that, you know, provides a product and then, you know, gives that product to customers, customers use that product. Those customers don't participate directly in the governance of that institution. Now, what a public blockchain is, is a public blockchain is a network, but it's a network that anyone can participate in that anyone can you know, have some type of governance you know, in, in, in many of these networks. And so I think what we're seeing in crypto isn't just an innovation in you know, how money is created and how money is used. It's an innovation in how institutions are created and operated and governed and managed. And so there's a whole concept of you know, this, this term, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous you know, organization. And it's really just a it's it's a new innovation on the concept of uh, a corporation where if you think about, you know, the, the Delaware C Corp and, you know, LLCs, like think about how much innovation was enabled by having this concept of this legal entity in this corporation. Now there are these new concepts of almost digital cooperatives that exist on the Internet that are driven by code that are leading to innovation across you know, many different uh, sectors. And so there, there are always going to be institutions, but the ways those institutions you know, operate, the ways that they provide trust um, evolve over time and, and new technologies enable new types of institutions. I think one question that emerges from this is um, Visa, of course, is more of a traditional institution as we've understood them in the past. And yet you're involved in uh, cryptocurrency and, and um, exploring all kinds of different opportunities in that space. So my first question would be, um, what are some of the things that Visa is doing um, within the crypto space? And more broadly, what do you see as the role of institutions like Visa in bringing us into this new era of cryptocurrencies? So I think what's fascinating about Visa is, you know, through our entire history and from the very beginning, we've been a pretty unique, different kind of institution. Uh, and so if you go all the way back and, and you read, you know, D. Hawk, who's one of my favorite thinkers, just absolutely brilliant, the, the founder of Visa, Visa emerged in this world where it was pretty chaotic, you know, in the early days of, of credit cards and, you know, you had, you know, all these different banks issuing cards and merchants and like there needed to be order, there needed to be coordination, there needed to be trust and governance. And Visa merged as an organization that helped electronic payments, you know, really scale and come into existence and establish trust and rules and governance and principles you know, around them. And so when we look at crypto today, you know, crypto is this, you know, new technology, but it's still early. And, you know, it's chaotic. You could argue it's even more chaotic than the early days uh, of credit cards. And so we think that there's a major role to play to help to bring coordination and, and trust and, and governance to certain aspects you know, of, of the crypto ecosystem. And, you know, a few examples of, of what we're doing there. First is, 
you know, as I mentioned, there are new types of institutions. There are crypto wallets and exchanges. We see the opportunity for Visa to serve as a bridge between those new institutions and our existing network of 70 million you know, merchants across the world. And so, you know, we're working with crypto exchanges, you know, like Coinbase and FTX and Crypto.com. And, you know, they want to be able to offer a range of products to their consumers. At the same time, very few, if any, merchants directly accept crypto. And so it makes sense for Coinbase to issue a Coinbase Visa card to enable a consumer to spend from a balance of crypto at any merchant that accepts Visa. And so we see ourselves as the bridge between this new crypto world and the existing world that most merchants and most financial institutions uh, are involved in. And then we also see an opportunity where, you know, over time, we expect that the existing large institutions, the banks, um, you know, and, and other you know, companies in our ecosystem, they're going to want to interact with this new crypto ecosystem. And so there's the opportunity for Visa to be the bridge again, where if a bank wants to be able to build a product that touches crypto, you know, we can help them. And so you could have Visa as a global, neutral, trusted brand and technology partner. And so we're creating crypto value add services and APIs and platforms that banks can then leverage to be able to offer crypto products to their consumers. And so, you know, over time, you know, we think that more and more banks will say we want to you know, leverage these new technologies and there'll be many different use cases by which they want to do that. And Visa can help you know, be an enabler and, and help them access and understand uh, this ecosystem. So we see a lot of different opportunities, uh, both you know, serving crypto companies, helping them you know, get into the existing payments financial ecosystem and serving existing banks and financial companies, helping them get into this new crypto ecosystem. And, and Visa is the bridge you know, be, between the, the old and the new, and we can establish trust and, and governance and coordination you know, between all of these new parties. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to August's comment about trust. And I think another fundamental aspect of money being taken seriously in society is the concept of scarcity. So like we started with a gold standard and gold is naturally created. So there's naturally some finite amount of gold on earth to trade. And then with the fiat standard, I mean, you can print paper money, but how do you create cryptocurrency? I think we've all heard of like crypto miners and crypto mining. I don't know if that's still, I think Matt DeVoe mentioned to us that maybe crypto is actually moving away from that individual mining. Uh, yeah, like that individual way of creating different cryptos and like earning crypto through mining on the blockchain or something. So can you sort of like quickly break that down for people that don't really know anything about what that is? Yeah. So I, I think first mining is you could teach a whole you could do a Stanford PhD seminar on mining. It is incredibly complex. Uh, I, I could do my best to try and distill it. But I think to, t to take a step back, this concept of software guaranteed scarcity is very interesting of, you know, gold is physical you know, nature-driven scarcity. If only so much exists, there's still technology around how to actually bring, get gold out of the ground. And if the price of gold goes up, you know, it's worth it to innovate in more technologies. Maybe you're mining asteroids and bringing gold uh, down. And so it's kind of this natural scarcity versus, you know, software-driven scarcity. And when you think about something like Bitcoin, there's a, a core, you know, piece of software that determines how much Bitcoin exists. And so there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin uh, that ever exist in the software. And so if that is, is code, 
Now the question is, okay, well, why can't someone just change that? Why can't they just you know, update the software and, and make more Bitcoin? And the value and how that gets enforced is through this decentralized network where, you know, Bitcoin is a software program, but it's a software program that's being run on tens of thousands of computers that are connected and networked to each other at the same time. And so anyone could go in and fork Bitcoin and say, I'm going to you know, double the supply of Bitcoin that will ever exist. And you could do that tomorrow. It's very easy. Many people have. But can you then go and get tens of thousands of different computers that are running the current version of the Bitcoin software to upgrade to your version of Bitcoin software? And if you tell them, use my version because it's better because there are 50 million Bitcoin, will they actually update? And the answer, what we've seen so far is no, <laughs> they won't update because of the whole principle, the social consensus around what is Bitcoin is Bitcoin is a network that has 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. And so whatever you just created is not Bitcoin. It's something else. And so whatever you just created, maybe you could get a few people to upgrade and like maybe they use it and it's called another network and there are networks like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold and you know other forks and derivatives. But the 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 network that has the most participation with the most people running the software and by default the most security because it's this largest network that is the hardest to change and that the major institutions are building on top of they're running the software that says Bitcoin only has 21 million. And so there can be, anyone can create a new cryptocurrency every day. It's not the software alone. It's the software plus the implementation and the social consensus layer to get everyone to run that software. And that's what the real network effect and what the real hurdle is. And that is where scarcity is enforced. Uh, and so mining is kind of, it's a way that new Bitcoin is created over time. It's a way that the network is is maintained and secured. And it's basically computers that are, you know, these are specialized computers that that run the software that mine. And they're actually expending real energy. There's a cost to mining, you know, Bitcoin. And so, you know, they're incentivized to protect the network and to be honest, because it's against their interest if they're expending all this energy, if they're buying expensive equipment and then they decide to attack the network or be dishonest, their investment in all the energy and all the equipment is not worth anything. And so it's really this interesting game theory and coordination system where it's almost like competitive bookkeeping, where how can you like people talk a lot about the blockchain and like blockchain is this interesting concept. Blockchain is really just a linked list. That's all it is. It's just a ledger. It's a linked list. What's interesting is how do you decide who gets to add to that list? And that's what mining is. It's called a consensus mechanism. If you have a list in a ledger that is managed by tens of thousands of computers all across the world that don't know or trust each other, how do you decide who gets to add to that ledger? Well, you have to create a game. You have to create some competition. You have to have people have skin in the game where they're actually expending energy and they're expending money for the right to add to the ledger. And if you create the incentives in the right way, can you then have you know, these computers cooperate together and coordinate to maintain you know, a ledger that is the, the system of truth? And so mining is one consensus mechanism 
It's one way to coordinate many different entities across the world for them to be able to to maintain uh, this network. Uh, but it is at the end of the day, it is social consensus. And, you know, even if all the miners decided, let's you know do something else, if the users of Bitcoin were like, no, that's not Bitcoin. Yeah, then they're not necessarily going to follow the miners. And so it's this multi-party organism that evolves over time with different roles and different rules. And so far, it's been operating for 12 years and it's storing a trillion dollars of value and moving trillions of dollars of value. So it's been pretty effective today. did want to talk talk about nfts and uh art and wealth um because to me at least crypto and blockchain in general i think the perception is still that it's not necessarily for everyone it's for financiers it's for technologists it's for engineers what what does the blockchain or or these things called nfts what are they what do they mean for you know people genuinely on the periphery of technology who because it sounds like to me that this is providing a new framework or a new apparatus for people who want to be artists and create value in that way to sustain their livelihoods uh, or to get, you know, <laughs> some value out of their art. So um, I'm just curious on what you have to say about that. Yes, yeah, so the way I think about it is crypto started as, you know, really a new asset, a new type of asset, type of asset class with Bitcoin. And I would argue it's one of the most accessible asset classes that have ever existed, that anyone could buy $1 or $10 of Bitcoin over the past 10 years. Uh, And so it's not something you had to have a lot of access to, but it appealed to a certain set of the population that were interested in certain ideals and privacy and libertarians. And so that's how how crypto started. Crypto then evolved to become this new form factor uh, for fiat currencies with stable coins. Uh, and that you know, appeals to fintech people and you know, financiers and other people. There's like interesting new financial services that could be created. And then now crypto is evolving to becoming a new form factor for digital media. And it's really a new file type format for media on the internet. And so everyone knows what a JPEG is, what a PDF or a PNG is. An NFT is just another file type. And it's a file type that has these unique properties that JPEGs don't have. It's for a blockchain computer instead of just for an individual you know, computer that, that you have you know, on your hard drive. And so it has these properties like you can have provenance. You can see who created that file for the first time, who put that file on the blockchain. Uh, you can see how that file moves over the blockchain. And so you could actually have who owns that file at any given time. And you can't just copy and, and replicate that file. You know, someone owns the token to that file at, at any point in time. And so, you know, it's really one of the exciting things is that it's bringing a whole new class of people into crypto that are setting up crypto wallets that are interacting with blockchains because they're excited about NFTs. They might not have been interested in digital gold or you know, new stores of value. You know, they might not have been interested in, in decentralized finance and lending, but they're interested in art and culture and music. And now what they're finding is that, you know, this technology offers an opportunity for creators to actually monetize their work where imagine being a digital artist, you know, how could you sell your digital art? You know, there weren't a lot of ways that you could really sell digital art and how many digital art collectors 
do you know? Now, five years ago, how many people are like, what do you do? I collect digital art. Well, so you have a bunch of files on your computer? Like, how would you even do that? And, you know, now crypto and blockchains and NFTs, they're creating a whole new asset class of digital art. And if you think about art as an asset class in general, you know, it's, I think, $68, $70 billion asset class of, like, fine art. But there are a lot of gatekeepers. It's hard to it's intermediated by auction houses and galleries. And and so there there are a small number of people who decide what art is valuable and what comes to get auctioned. And and it's hard as a collector. Um, You know, how many people do you know that have exposure to art as an asset class as just a a, a, a student or even a, a young professional? And so I would argue that you know NFTs are making art both significantly more accessible as an asset class and could make it significantly bigger. And so the same way when you think about, you know, when Uber came around, it was kind of, you know, you can think about Uber as, you know, the opportunity is the size of the taxi market. Like how many people would drive a taxi? How many people would ride it? And people realized over time that Uber actually led to a lot of people start driving Uber that never you know, would drive taxis full time. And a lot of people started riding Uber that used to take the bus or used to not even go someplace. And now they take an Uber. You know, there's the potential that NFTs can do the same thing to the art industry, where you look at, okay, how many people are actually artists that are selling art? Well, in the traditional world with physical art, not that many, and it's you know hard to get into galleries. Now, if everyone with an Instagram account can upload an NFT and, and sell digital art, there will be many more people participating as artists. And then what about collectors? You know, I've never collected a piece of physical art in my life. I wouldn't know what to do with it. Where do I go and get it? Where do I hang it? Like, what if I move? Like, how do I ship it? I wouldn't know how to resell it. I can now sit in front of my computer and I can find amazing digital art and I can collect it with a click. I can now display it to everyone that interacts with me online. And then if I want to, I can resell it with a click. And so it's a much lower hurdle way to participate and to support you know, artists and creators. And it's you know really creators and, and artists that are able to get into commerce. And so if you think about what e-commerce did, it enabled a whole new set of people to participate in selling when they didn't have to get you know a, an actual physical store. <laughs> you, know, you just sit in front of your computer and you could sell something online to the world, but you still had to produce a good. You still had to have a, a factory, you still had to have a fulfillment center, you still had to ship it to somebody. Those are hard logistical problems that have a high upfront cost. Now with NFTs, you could sell a digital good online and you can actually interact with the blockchain and you can mint digital goods. And so smart contracts and blockchains replace the factory. You can then ship it where it arrives immediately to a crypto address. That replaces freight and that replaces you know, delivery. You don't have to wait days. And so the velocity of commerce that can happen and the number of people that can participate in digital commerce increases exponentially when you have these new technologies and the ability to create and sell digital goods or to collect digital goods. And it's also merging these concepts of commerce and investing. Used to be you had your assets, your Robinhood account over here, your investments, and then you had your Netflix account and you had you know your Spotify account and you had your things, your consumption, your entertainment here. Now that's coming together where when you buy crypto art or when you buy you know a tokenized song or when you buy a crypto basketball card, is it commerce or is it an investment? It's something that's exciting that you care about that's entertainment, but now it's an asset that you own that could go up in value that you could resell you know, in the future. So I think there are major implications of that. 
So um, I think what I'm getting from this conversation is also that we might explore um, turning some of the episodes of our podcast into NFTs. But I think that's for, uh, that's for uh, you know, we can have that discussion sometime, some other time. Um, in the interest of time, this has been a fascinating conversation, Kai. And I think it would be interesting for us to close with um, some of the opportunities that you have at Visa for people that are interested in uh, cryptocurrencies, whether they have a liberal arts degree like we do or whether they have an engineering degree. Uh, we'd love to hear about some of those opportunities. Absolutely. So, so we are hiring for Visa Crypto across you know, multiple roles, uh, teams and levels inside the organization. And we're really looking for people who are just fascinated with that question of what is money and how is money going to evolve in the future? And, and I think one of the unique opportunities that Visa has is to help shape that and to help build that and to make sure that these new forms of money, you know, can be, you know, used reliably, can have trust and, and can help people who, who need it the most. And so, um, we have a great time. You know, we think this is a fascinating area, uh, and there's an incredible amount of impact that we can have. And, and we have many different open roles. Uh, we can share the, the link to our, our, uh, you know, page with, with all the roles there folks are interested in. Um, and I encourage everyone to just, you know, explore crypto and, you know, try it out, you know, get a crypto wallet, mint an NFT, collect an NFT. And it's one of those things that would be really hard to understand the impact of the internet if you never got a dial-up connection and you never, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'm older, so it's like, I remember my first dial-up connection and going online and surfing the web. And, and then you start to see, wow, this is this new world and like what implications could it have? Now it's exact same thing with going on-chain. If you never had a crypto wallet, if you've never interacted with a public blockchain, it's really hard to say how this is going to impact many different industries in a similar way that the internet did. So I encourage everyone to just take an interest and, and play around with it. And so it's you can read, you can listen, you can learn, but until you actually use some of these new technologies, it's it's really hard to understand the implications of that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we know you have a hard stop now, so we will let you go. Awesome. Um, but thank you for joining the conversation, and we um. We appreciate you coming on. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Sounds like an amazing show. Excited to listen to it. Well, thank you so much to Kai and to you for joining the conversation with us on blockchain and cryptocurrency. Uh, as always, we love to hear, to, have, to continue the conversation with all of our listeners. Um, so please don't be afraid to send us an email at theperipherypodcast at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. We have a Twitter. We have an Instagram. Basically all of that at the Periphery Pod. Um, we'd love to connect. So please do.